Now hear God's holy word from 1 Kings chapter 18 as we continue our study of the life and times of Elijah, the prophet. Hear God's word. And it came to pass after many days that the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab and there was a severe famine in Samaria and Ahab had called Obadiah who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared Yahweh greatly. For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of Yahweh that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him, and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your master, Elijah is here. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for the way that you have preserved your word throughout all these generations. You have delivered it to your church who has preserved it and translated it and kept it before us. We thank you now that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words is here to guide us into truth and a right understanding of these words. So fill us all with your spirit and open our ears that we might hear and receive and live. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, there are generally two kinds of people that God uses to bring reformation and revival. There are insiders and there are outsiders. There are those who work to get inside of an institution or a government or an industry to change it from the inside out. And there are men on the outside with any connections, without any connections at all, who call for repentance from the outside. Reformation requires both. You need insiders and outsiders, and you have both throughout biblical history. Uh, you have insiders like Daniel and Nehemiah and Joseph, and you have outsiders like John the Baptist, uh, both. So there are outsider prophets who call on the arts and Wall Street and Washington, D.C., call these to repentance and there are insider prophets who are subtly working from within to change those places from the inside out. So far in our study of Elijah, we can see very clearly he's an outsider prophet. There's no question of what category he's in. He lobs his judgment at wicked King Ahab, and then he leaves. He, he lobs his prophecy, and then he leaves. But now we learn that there's also been an insider prophet this whole time in Israel. Elijah leaves Sidon. That's where he was taking care of the widow and her son. And he goes back into Israel. And along the way, he runs into a man named Obadiah, who was the right-hand man of Ahab. He was the secretary of Ahab and also a devout believer in Yahweh. His name means servant of Yahweh. Now, you might immediately think, how could a devout servant of Yahweh serve Ahab? How could he work for Ahab? And we might ask the same question. How could a Christian make movies or work in government? 
He must have been, Obadiah must have been severely compromised to have worked for Ahab. He must have sold his soul. We find out that's not the case at all. In fact, by having inside knowledge of what was going on in Ahab's palace, Obadiah found out Jezebel's plot to wipe out all the prophets of the Lord. And so Obadiah, with that intelligence, was able to act quickly and spared the lives of a hundred prophets by hiding them in caves and giving them bread and water. Obadiah used his insider position for the preservation and the protection of God's people. Now, Obadiah's calling was very different from Elijah's calling. Elijah could be the bold prophet. He doesn't have to worry about making friends. He doesn't have to worry about keeping friends. He can stay on the outside and change the kingdom as an outsider, as a stranger who works outside the system. Whereas Obadiah has to be a little bit more crafty, a little more subtle, Obadiah's got to make the right friends and be careful with what he says and when he says it. But he's working from the inside and he's faithful to change the system. And again, you really have to have both guys, whether you talk about the government or the military or medicine or education or business or the arts. There are godly men on the outside acting as Elijah's who are working to reform things from the outside there are also Obadiahs on the inside who are in the position to reform things from the inside out. Now, where we run into trouble is when the, the, the Elijahs and the Obadiahs start to accuse each other of certain things because the Obadiahs on the inside think the Elijahs on the outside, well, you just need to roll up your sleeves and get involved and campaign and get elected. Or you need to come uh, uh, move to Hollywood and get involved in the arts or, or, or come teach at a public school if you really want to get inside the belly of the beast and make a change. And if you don't do that, then you just don't care enough. That's what the Obadiah might be inclined to say. And, and then the Elijahs are on the outside and they think, well, Obadiah, you're just compromised with the world. Both of them need to realize their particular gifts and callings and how they both complement each other. Whether we identify more with Elijah or more with Obadiah, we are all, all of us, Elijah's and Obadiah's, called to be separated from the heart, uh, uh, separated from the world in our heart, separated from the world in our affections. We don't worship what they worship. We don't believe what they believe. We're separated in our affections. We worship only the triune God separated in our affections and active in the world with our gifts and our callings. Uh, we have to have both going on, separated and active. Uh, and, and whether we are a, uh, an Obadiah or, or an Elijah, the problem is, is that sometimes those who get involved the way Obadiah did, they do compromise and they get sucked in. And then those who are separated like Elijah they don't get very active in the world. They just lob, uh, lob you know, threats and, and judgment from the outside, and they don't really understand what's going on. And it's important to see how God uses both, if both are faithful, if both are separated in their affections, but engaged with their bodies and their gifts and their talents. Well, we're going to see how both of these men work in this chapter as we go along. Elijah runs into Obadiah as Obadiah is carrying out orders from Ahab. Ahab sent Obadiah to go out through all the land, find some water, sources of water, and find some grassy areas for my horses and my mules. It's very significant that Ahab is not worried about the cows. And he's not worried about the sheep. He's not worried about the fruitful land. He's not worried about the animals that, that give milk and the animals that, that you can eat. 
he's very concerned about the war animals. He's concerned about defense because Israel is vulnerable after three years of no rain. It would be very easy to invade them and to take them over at this point. So he's worried about his defenses. These are war animals. He's concerned about his horses because pagan kings always worry about their horses. One of the marks again and again of a pagan king throughout the scriptures is that they collect and they multiply horses. When Israel was praying for a king and God gave them Saul, uh, he reminded them that there are things that he's gonna take from here and things he's gonna do. And one of the things uh, that, that uh, was forbidden of godly kings in Deuteronomy is that they not collect horses and not store up gold and not multiply wives. These are things you're not to multiply. We don't multiply horses because the Lord is your defense. You can have a small group of mighty men the way that David did, but you don't need a large standing army. And yet all the pagan kings have this large standing army with a big cavalry. The psalmist, in Psalm 20, he writes, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, Yahweh was the defense of Israel. The Lord of hosts, which we sing about and we say Lord of hosts, every time we say that, we're saying Lord of armies. That's what we're singing there. Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. He is the captain of the angelic army. At the end of Elijah's life, when he goes up to heaven in a fiery chariot, Elisha cries out, my father, my father, the chariot and the horsemen of Israel. Elijah is the chariot of Yahweh in company with God's angelic cavalry, God's angelic host of angels. We saw that in our study in the book of Revelation, didn't we? This angelic cavalry together with the saints who are the army who march across the earth. Well, the faithful people of Yahweh are an army. No heathen military has ever uh, been able to vanquish his army. So Israel's department of defense was to be Yahweh and his angelic army and his people. That's the defense. If you're pleasing to God, even your enemies will be at rest with you. If Ahab had been concerned with keeping the Lord happy, he wouldn't have to be worrying about his war animals. And yet he's most concerned about his horses and his mules. When Obadiah and Elijah meet, Obadiah at first can't believe it's really Elijah. And Elijah says, no, it really is me. Go and tell your master that Elijah is here. Let's read Obadiah's response. And we're gonna work through this whole chapter uh, piece at a time, verse nine. So he said, how have I sinned? This is Obadiah speaking. How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As Yahweh your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. It shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the spirit of Yahweh will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared Yahweh from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh? How I hid 100 men of Yahweh's prophets, 52 a gave, and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as Yahweh of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. Now we find out that Ahab has been looking for Elijah. Initially, Ahab wasn't that concerned with him because he came in and he said, it's not gonna rain 
uh, because of your idolatry, and he left, and Ahab uh, is not concerned. But at some point, you know, you get into a year without rain, and then the second year without rain, you start to remember that crazy prophet that said something about rain, and you want to start looking for him. So Ahab starts uh, hunting uh, Elijah down, and Ahab is concerned. Ahab, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Obadiah is concerned. He says, if I go and I tell Ahab that you want to see him, and well, first of all, there's no telling what he might do to me. He can't know that you and I are on the same side first. And if I go tell him that you want to talk to him, that I saw you, and then you just wander off, or the spirit of Yahweh whisks you away as he's known to do, if he just, he just takes you off somewhere and I come back and you're not here, I'm in trouble. He's gonna kill me. So Elijah vows, Obadiah, I'm not going anywhere. I will be here and I will present myself to Ahab this very day. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him and Ahab went to meet Elijah. This is significant, that Ahab is going to Elijah. Ordinarily, a king summons people. You come to where I am. You need to come to my presence. And, and I can decide whether or not you're granted my audience. No, Ahab is looking for Elijah. That's significant. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of Yahweh and have followed the Baals. Ahab blames the drought and he blames the famine and the fact that he can't find any water for his horses. All of this disaster, he blames on Elijah. He says, this is your fault. And he calls Elijah something very specific. He calls him the troubler of Israel. Who is the troubler of Israel? Who's been called that before? Well, if you remember, that term was used of Achan. When Joshua came into the land of Canaan and they uh, marched around the city of Jericho and the walls fell down, that city was to be the first fruits of the land, totally devoted to the Lord. They weren't supposed to take anything from the, from the city of Jericho. It was a whole burnt offering. It was an ascension offering, completely devoted to Yahweh. And yet a man named Achan stole some of the gold and he hid it underneath his tent. And because of his disobedience, uh, Israel lost the very, same very next battle that they went into. Achan was called the troubler of Israel because of his sin. Now Ahab just spouts this. He calls Elijah an Achan. He calls Elijah a troubler of Israel, and he doesn't understand the irony. Ahab has just allowed the city of Jericho to be rebuilt, uh, which is an offense to Yahweh, which is rolling the land back to the land of Canaan, Canaanite times. Um, Ahab doesn't see this. Uh, and so uh, this is similar to the way that Pharaoh accuses Moses of being a troublemaker. Uh, Abraham had a similar uh, accusation leveled at him by Abimelech. Abimelech says, you know, all of this is your fault. It would have been worse. And if more things had happened to me, that would have been your fault too. Paul gets this accusation from the Jews when he was being tried before Felix. Uh, the Jews said of Paul, this man is a troublemaker. And of course, ultimately, it's Jesus who gets unjustly blamed, and he goes to the cross under false accusations. You see, Satan is the accuser. His name means accuser. Satan is accuser. Satan blames the righteous. And these accusations are intended to demotivate the righteous. When you are doing what God says to do, 
and you are accused of doing evil, if you're accused of being a troubler, as so many saints are in the scriptures, it's intended to take the wind out of your sail. It's intended to deflate your balloon. It's to make you feel like you're in the wrong. You are the sinner. You don't love your neighbor. You're not compassionate. And the powerful and the wealthy and those in seats of authority who don't obey God, who have never cracked open a Bible, who don't understand right from wrong, who think nothing of the murder of the innocent, they want to say, well, we're the moral ones. We are the uh, ones who have the high ground. We're compassionate and define for you what love looks like, what is right and wrong in order to establish their own authority and their own morality over and above God's. Uh, when men like Ahab make these false accusations against the righteous, they're doing Satan's work. This is satanic, to bring an accusation. When Elijah is obeying God and he's called the troubler of Israel, that's satanic, that's Satan's work. It's a false accusation. They're helping Satan out. And they do this all the time. And what we have to do is ignore it and, and put it back on them like Elijah does. Elijah turns the whole thing back on Ahab. He says, what have I done? I haven't troubled Israel. You and your father's house have troubled Israel. You have abandoned the Lord and you have followed the Baals. You, Ahab, you are the troubler of Israel. And I'm about to issue a challenge. Verse 19. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Here, get all of the prophets of Baal and all of the prophets of Asher all together in one place. It's very strategic. We want them all together here for what's about to happen. And notice the priorities. The 400 prophets of Asherah, they dine at Jezebel's table, while the 100 prophets of the Lord are hiding in caves, eating bread and water. Jezebel celebrates with the pagans. She feeds the pagans and she parties with them. She kills the servants of Yahweh. She is so tolerant of idols and so multicultural and accepting of these diverse pagan deities. She is intolerant of the prophets of the Lord. So uh, uh, Elijah says, let's, let's get all these guys together. We, we need these guys to answer and to give an account for what they do and how they're leading Israel. Verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the prophets of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel and Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of Yahweh. Uh, there are other prophets in the land, but he's the only active prophet presently. I alone am left a prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of my Yahweh. I will call on the name of Yahweh and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Here are the people with no water and with no food, and no prospect or any hope for how they're going to get out of this situation, Baal worship isn't working out. It's not leading them into happiness or rest. 
And Elijah puts this question to them. How long are you gonna halt between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. He only gives them two options. There's not a gray area in between. There's not a third option. It's very clear. You either follow Yahweh or you continue in this death and in this drought and in this, this, this famine. What do you want? And how do the people answer? What do they say? You know what they say? Nothing. They stare at him with these dumb looks and these dead eyes and the mouth hanging open. They don't have an answer. There was no voice. No one answered. The people answered not a word. That's, that's what they do. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to think about here. I don't, I don't know. This is not a tough question, but idolatry makes you really dumb. And you think, why is God so patient with people like this? You know, the answer we get, uh, the question we get all the time is, how can a good God allow bad things happen to innocent people? But you only ask that question if you've never really immersed yourself in the scriptures. When you, when you really get into the Bible, you see things the other way around and say, why is God so patient and so kind with, with really wicked and dumb people as he is here? These people are hopeless. They can't even answer this question. So to make it crystal clear to them who is in control of creation, Elijah proposes this test. Let's make altars. Let's put uh, bulls on them. You call to your gods. I will call to my God, and we'll see who lights the fire on the altar. The one who answers by fire, he is God. And the people say, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I mean, that sounds pretty entertaining. Let's see what's going on. This will be interesting. Well, the people are ignorant. They think that Yahweh and Baal are maybe just kind of two different ways of talking about the same thing. Well, the prophets of Baal, you know they're probably nervous at this point because they know better. They know that this is not gonna work out for them. But they have to go along and hope and see if just by some chance something will happen, but this is not gonna go well. Verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon saying, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leapt about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's meditating or he's busy. He's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. I mean, he's a God. He's got his hands full. He's got a, he's got a schedule. Maybe he didn't hear you. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Of course, Baal doesn't answer to their shouts because he's only the cartoon face of the belief in an impersonal force. There's nothing there. He's not omnipresent. Uh, if you know, you have to you have to act like you got to wake him up, or you have to shout loud and dance frantically enough for him to notice and hear you. It's no surprise that nothing happens when they call in the name of Baal, because there's nothing there that can respond. Elijah's teasing and his mocking is merciless and it's bold and it's confident because God has already said he's going to send rain. So Elijah knows that the same thing is not going to happen to him. He's not going to be on the other side of similar taunts. They cut themselves and bleed, but they still can't get the attention of Baal it's because their sacrifice, their blood is not efficacious. Their blood is not going to bring them salvation. They can't get the attention of their gods. Those last words of verse 29 are just tragic. No voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. 
They go all day and they get nothing back. Uh, the, the day of Baal is coming to an end. You see, they go all the way to the evening sacrifice and we're about to get the start of a new day. Uh, the sun is setting on Baalism. The sun is about to rise on the day of the Lord. So verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of Yahweh that was broken down. The work to restore Israel, the work to rebuild Israel begins with the repair of an altar. Reformation and restoration begins with worship. Remember the stone in the uh, tabernacle, the altar stone was to be a stone cut, stone made without hands. It was supposed to be one that had no tool used on it. And we see that same image of a stone made without hands uh, crushing the the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of this image that represented all the coming kingdoms of the world, all the empires, and it was toppled by the altar stone, the stone uh, that had never been cut, the stone cut without hands. And, and Daniel's vision, or, or Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision, is that what knocks over the empires, what defeats the kingdoms of the world, is worship. The establishment of true worship is what destroys the wicked of the earth and their false worship. And all of the rulers and all of the empires give way to the empire, the kingdom of Christ, which grows and grows to fill the whole earth. So here the first thing that Elijah touches, the first thing he puts back together, the priority is the altar. The priority is worship. Verse 31. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of Yahweh had come saying, Israel shall be your name. He uses 12 stones, one for each tribe. This is significant because the tribes are currently divided. There's the Northern kingdom of Israel. There's the Southern kingdom of Judah, 10 to the North, two to the South. Elijah's insistent though, symbolically he's saying, Israel needs to be unified in worship Israel needs to be unified before God. They can be politically divided if necessary, but let's at least come to God's throne together. We ought to be thinking in terms of 12 tribes, not 10 and two, but let's bring them together. And if it wasn't for our division that separated us, that cut the Northern kingdom off from the life of the temple and the, the festival calendar and the sacrifices, if not for our division, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in now. So Elijah deliberately uses 12 stones to rebuild this altar as a symbol of the intended unity of the tribes. Verse 32, then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed, two baskets of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. Here's the number 12 again. Four jars of water poured out three times is 12 jars of water poured on this altar. 12 jars of precious water. It hasn't rained for three years. How valuable do you think a jar of water is in this time? And once again, 12 Jars of water poured on 12 stones, once again, testifying to the unity of Israel. Think of all the parts that, that uh, Elijah uses to build the altar here. You have stones, uh, 
You have water flowing down the altar into a moat, so you have a miniature mountain and water flowing out of it. You have wood there. There's wood on the altar. There's an animal. The mountain that they're on, Carmel, Mount Carmel means fruitful place. It's often referred to as this lush, rich place full of trees and full of vegetation. Mount Carmel is a, it's a, it's a garden on top of a mountain, essentially. And this is all supposed to remind us of Eden. There's animals, there's trees, there's rivers, there's stones. Elijah is recreating the world. He's, he's remodeling the world on the top of the mountain. And he's about to demonstrate who has power over this world. Who controls this world? Well, it's not Baal. Verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Yahweh, hear me, that this people may know that you are Yahweh God and that you have turned our hearts back to you again. This is submission not manipulation. See, this is the difference between the prophets of Baal and their prayer and Elijah's prayer. Elijah is submitting to Yahweh. He's not trying to manipulate him. Baal worship is all about manipulation. The prophets are hoping to manipulate Baal into responding to them, but it's all a formula. It's all mechanical, and it doesn't work. Elijah shows us a different way. He prays, and he recognizes that God is really in control, and it's on God's initiation that we have life. God is the one who, who comes to us, and so he worships him, and he asks him to answer. He doesn't have to cut himself. He doesn't have to leap around like a maniac. He doesn't have to lose his mind. He submits himself and prays. Verse 38, then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Now, technically, this would have been an illegitimate altar since the temple is still in operation down in Jerusalem. And if Elijah had started his own fire on this altar, he might have been judged like Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire uh, before God um, in an illegitimate way. But Elijah doesn't uh, light the altar. God sends the fire. God lights his own fire on the altar, just like he did at the tabernacle. He sent his blessing on that altar. And the fire that God sends consumes everything. Elijah might have been accused of doing something tricky if, you know, just kind of a little spark, a little ember started and, and it kind of spread slowly. But no one can spontaneously create a fire that is immediate and that hot that melts the rocks and turns the soil under the rocks to glass and immediately turns all the water to steam and, and just combusts everything immediately. Uh, so witnessing this, this is not the hand of Elijah. This wasn't a trick. And so the people worship God. They fall down on their face and cry out to Yahweh. Now it's time to deal with the prophets of Baal. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, uh, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. I'm sorry, verse 40. Verse 40, we can't skip this. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. So the Baalists are killed at the bottom of the mountain in the dry bed of a river so that 
the bodies of the prophets of Baal, all 850 of the prophets of Baal and Asherah down there in that dry river bed. So when the rain comes, the rain is just gonna flush them out of the land. It's just going to you know, remove the refuse. Along with the other garbage, they're gonna get flushed right out uh, of the land when it rains. Then verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So after sin has been dealt with, after the whole burnt offering, after the ascension offering, it's time to eat and it's time to rejoice. Ahab is gonna be dealt with later, but now we're refreshed, we're renewed. We've rid the land of Baal worship. The people have recommitted themselves to serve the Lord. So there's nothing left to do but to eat and give thanks and drink. Verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now, it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of Yahweh came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Um, Elijah had prayed first for the, for the drought, and now he crouches down. He puts his head between his knees, the scripture says. He's balled up. And he prays intently now for the drought to end. He tells his servant to go up and look, go up and look, go up and look, keep looking. Seven times he says, go up and look. And on the last try, his servant sees a cloud rising up over the sea, growing into blackness over the land. A wind rises up and a heavy rain falls, something that no one had seen for three years. And somehow, this is one of those little hilarious passages of scripture that I always love. Ahab is in a chariot. Elijah's on foot. Elijah runs and beats Ahab back to Jezreel, back to town. Now, maybe he took a shortcut. Uh, maybe he was miraculously running at superhuman speeds ahead of, the, uh, ahead of the chariot filled with the Holy Spirit. However it happens, Elijah runs before Ahab. A runner before the king is the herald of good news and a king's servant. Elijah gets back to Jezreel to announce that the blessing of the Lord has fallen on the land. The blessing of the Lord has returned. He gets there before the king does so that he can proclaim the good news and the return of the true king. He's also in front of the king in a sense that it's Elijah leading the way. Elijah is the messenger of the word of God. And the king is going to need to follow Elijah if this work of restoration is going to continue. Now, quickly and briefly, what do we take away from this story? This tells me that in times of idolatry, in days of encroaching darkness, in times of great national apostasy, what needs to be repaired first is true worship. There are lots of things that we might think, well, that needs to be fixed, and this needs to be influenced, and this needs to change, but priority number one is right worship of God in every place. That's what needs to be fixed. 
By recreating a little Eden at the top of Mount Carmel, Elijah shows us that in worship, the heart of the world is renewed. In worship, fellowship with God is restored. By repairing the altar, he rebuilds the world in a small model. And then he depicts what's going to happen to the whole nation. Water is first poured on the altar, and then water comes from the sky and falls on the whole country. Before blessing can be poured out on the land, it first has to be sought out in worship. Before the land is watered, the altar is watered. Before the land is refreshed and restored, worship is refreshed and restored. Elijah's worship renewed the world and delayed judgment for Israel, gave them more time, just like our worship. Uh, renews the world week by week and, and prevents the world from greater judgment. That's why you have to come to worship and why you have to take it seriously. That's why you have so much to do in worship. You're priests and you have work to do. This is not about entertaining you or giving you, you know, something to look at or something to watch or something to you know, stir up your emotions. You come here to work. You have things to say, things to pray, things to confess, things to do, psalms to sing. That is your job on the Lord's day. And it is in worship, not only in this congregation, but across the world as faithful Christians are restoring and renewing themselves in worship, being renewed by God's Holy Spirit in worship, that the world is changed, that the world is restored because first the altar is rebuilt. That's the first thing. And then in the process to restore right worship, Elijah picked a fight with idolatry and with the idolaters. I love how throughout this story, and even beyond, throughout Elijah's whole life, Elijah isn't reacting. Elijah isn't responding. He's acting. Elijah is initiating. All the enemies of God are reacting to the trouble that Elijah is stirring up for them. It seems like in the church today where we're the ones who feel like we're always under attack, we're back on our heels, we're responding, we're reacting to the crazy things in the world going on. They keep pushing us, they push insane agendas, the world pushes their issues, and it feels like we just can't keep up with all the insanity. We can't, res we can't respond quickly enough to all the things that are coming at us because over the last 100, 150 years or so, maybe 200 years, the, the, the church has been in this position where we've kind of avoided conflict. We avoided doing anything that might prevent us from packing people into our entertainments or, or doing anything or saying anything that might make us unpopular with the, with the people we idolize, the people we really want to like us really badly. You see, we haven't started the right kinds of fights the fight has been brought to us anyway, whether or not we've wanted it. The fight has been brought to us, but we're playing defense. And it seems like we're always playing defense when we ought to be the ones on offense. But when you're faithfully living out the gospel, when you're boldly, publicly obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, that puts you on offense directly into conflict. And it places you in positions where the idolaters have to respond to you. You see, Ahab has to come to Elijah. Ahab is the one who's put back on his heels. He's got to respond to Elijah's work. And the church, when she is faithful, uh, puts herself in this position where the world has to react and, and respond. And of course, this provokes the hostility of the world. The world hates her when she's faithful because she's here to announce the end of the world, the judgment of 
the Lord on all idolatry. She's here to announce the end of that world system that's passing away and the coming of the world that is under heaven's rule. The world doesn't like that message and the world resents her for that. And so it provokes them to hatefulness and violence. Elijah's brand of aggressive spiritual warfare was characteristic of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus went around Galilee and Judea starting fires that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had to put out. Jesus wasn't back on his heels responding to them all the time. He went out and did things openly and deliberately to drive them nuts. You know, he doesn't have to eat grain without washing his hands. He doesn't, he doesn't have to heal on the Sabbath, but he does because he knows that that's going to provoke a response from them. He brings the fight to them. He brings the fight to the demons, to the self-righteous, to the oppressors, and he still takes initiative. Jesus isn't a passive savior. He's not this milquetoast king who's just wringing his hands, wondering how it's all going to turn out, and he hope it turns out okay. He comes to conquer, and he comes to conquer us. He comes to conquer our sins, to give us life, to raise us out of death, and to give us new life. It's without his initiation. Thank God that he takes the initiation because without it, we'd still be dead. We'd still be in our sins. Like Elijah prays in verse 37, he says, you are the Lord God. You have turned their hearts back to you again. God, unless you initiated, there would be no cry of repentance. There would be no faith. You have initiated. You have brought us and, uh, to this point and given us faith so that we can call on you. Jesus is our greater Elijah who brings the fight to the idolaters to intercede on our behalf before the face of the Father, the way that Elijah does here, to bring us restoration and blessing, to rebuild the altar. And as, and as, he, he, and, and as he does this, he invites us to join his mighty host. We can't help but join him and imitate him and follow in the fight. There's been so many great conversations I've had with so many of you over the last few weeks where there are so many of you who are stirred up and ready to start things, to build things, to initiate. And, and my, my uh, answer to each of you is, yes, yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Just, just keep doing that. Keep operating and thinking and believing and living like we're on offense, not on defense, but on offense. Take the fight to the idolaters the way that Elijah does and continue to consider where can you strategically place yourself to bring down idols? Where has God gifted you? Where are your interests and passions? And how do you press in that direction to bring down the idols of our age? It doesn't matter if you're more useful as an outsider or an insider, the mission is the same. Oppose every belief and oppose every institution that doesn't recognize Jesus as king. The insider can build influence. The insider can develop strategic connections like Obadiah did, make slow, subtle, directional changes. Don't compromise. Bring things under the dominion of Jesus. Be wise as a serpent. Be gentle as a dove. The outsider can cry aloud and spare not. He can call for repentance and warn about judgment to come. But the goal of both is the same, to tear down every idol because there is no neutrality anywhere in human society. Either a system or an institution is set up to openly, explicitly acknowledge Jesus as king, or it is bound for failure. That's, those are the only two options. <laughs> those are the same options that Elijah gives the people. He says, you're either going to honor Jesus or Baal. 
You gotta honor Yahweh or Baal. You, you make up your mind because there's no gray space. Anything that does not serve the Lord Jesus is uh, uh, short-lived. It has an expiration date. The battle lines are clearly drawn. You either follow Jesus or you follow nothing. Pagans and nominal Christians want all of this gray space. They want all of this neutrality, all this neutral territory. And it's up to us to force the question to all of them, to force the antithesis that it's Jesus or nothing. So continue, continue, take the fight to the idolaters, call them out, push them to defend their insane, inconsistent belief system the way that Elijah does with the prophets of Baal and see if God doesn't respond by sending fire from heaven and blessing your work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Grant us great wisdom and clarity that we might be bold in our day to oppose idols and idolatry and that we would rebuild the altar of right worship. We, we pray that in this we would please you in all things. So fill us again with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.